I'm so happy to welcome you and welcome everybody. We'll just get started here. Um, we've got a lot of call-in audience members, um, a lot of Common Good members and people new to the Common Good. Um, just a few brief notes before we get going, where you want you to keep your mic muted until the Q&A portion, which would be about 20, 25 minutes in. Uh, please do start to raise your hand digitally um, or put your question on the chat wall. We'll get try to get to everybody. Um, today we have two really fascinating businessmen and leaders, and we thank you both so much for being with us today. I've known both of you separately for many years, and I like you both so much, so I'm thrilled to have you together uh, with us today. Um, Anthony Scaramucci studied to be a lawyer at Harvard, but was known as a businessman first. I, I think I might have met you when you were at Goldman, um, Anthony, but certainly with your first um, company, and now you're the current CEO of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Um, Anthony's also the founder of the SALT Conference, which is um, an amazing conference, a very prominent forum for business leaders, which is on hold this year, at least um, uh, in live. It's not live this year because of the pandemic. But Anthony, I, I assume you're still a Republican, is probably best known for his complicated <laughs> history with Donald Trump, including his brief stint as Trump's White House communications director and his uh, more recent opposition to the president. And Fred Hochberg, I mean, you're so sweet to uh, step in here at the last minute as our substitute moderator since Robert Wolf couldn't do it. But uh, Fred was with us recently just after the publication of his book, Trade is not a four-letter word, uh, which he completed following his tenure as president of the XM Bank during the Obama administration. Fred was also dean of the Milano School at the, at the New School and deputy administrator of the Small Business Administration for the Clinton uh, uh, administration. Of course, he's also a leading LGBT activist and democratic fundraiser. You're getting kudos from uh, Phineas here, my uh, little pup. But thank you both um, for doing this today. We're living through truly unpredictable and difficult times. So I'm gonna, with that, hand it over to Fred. So you're up, Fred. Great, good to be here. Thank you, thank you, Patricia. Uh, thanks for, I, I feel like I'm the wolf man today since Robert Wolf isn't here. And I, uh, Anthony and I met sometime in the 90s, I think actually through the Clintons at some point, but, um, so we've known each other also for a long time. We're going to talk a little bit about the economy. Uh, we'll I thought we would talk a little bit about um, uh, Anthony's relationship with President Trump before, during, and after. Uh, we can talk about trade. Uh, we can talk about a number of things, but then we'll take it off to questions. So we'll do about 20 minutes between the two of us, and then we'll open it up for a more grouped conversation. So um, just to, to start, uh, um, and Anthony is a man who I've known for a long time who has sharp and good insights on a wide, wide range of subjects. So uh, starting with, with the economy and the stock market, which has been gyrating, um, how do you understand that? Is it just there's so much uncertainty that the market is moving on little bits of information? Or how do you understand just the gyrations we've seen of late? Well, first of all, I want to thank Patricia. It's an honor to be here with you, Fred. And uh, I want to tell a story about the XM Bank before this is over, Fred, because I attribute the saving of the XM Bank to you. And I'll explain that to everybody uh, if you give me the opportunity. But 
specifically oh, you can on, talk about that for the whole to, to half hour. Well, well I'm gonna, I, I do want to. I do want to talk about it because it is tied into where we're going to be as a country in the future and how important that bank actually is if it's utilized properly. And, and you may recall, we met together. I think we went to the MoMA Cafe to discuss yep. the XM Bank when I was Chief Strategy Officer. Let me let me address the economy for a second, and I want to talk about that for a second, and then take another question. But for, for us at Skybridge, uh, it is a tale of two economies. It's the asset economy, which is being driven and run by Jerome Powell. And then it is the economy economy, which unfortunately is being run by the virus. And so uh, we have no control or predictability about the virus. Unfortunately, our leadership wanted to curve the facts of the virus. And this is what really caught President Trump because his skill set has always been about deflection and trying to move the curvature of reality towards his reality as opposed to reality. Uh, but when you're dealing with science, you can't get to the podium with the American people and say two plus two equals seven, and then look at the cameras and say, well, that's fake science. You can't do that in a situation with the virus. And so that caught up uh, by the middle of March uh, to the administration and so we're dealing with the aftermath of that. So two economies, the asset economy, we all know on this call is gonna be just fine. It's not a bazooka that Jerome Powell is using. He's using a green water wall. This is like a green tsunami of money washing over the United States. Uh, the deployment of capital is like nothing we've ever seen before. 2.4 trillion in 11 weeks, another 1.6 trillion coming in the next 14 months. It will show up in asset prices. I guess the cautionary thing I would say to everybody on this call, it's coming in very thinly. It's 15 to 20 stocks. It's the bank stocks plus Microsoft. And uh, we know that that often ends in tears. There are people on this call old enough to remember the Nifty 50. How all you did was buy the Nifty 50 in the early 70s. That ended in tears. Uh, so we need to be cautious on assets. But as it relates to the economy, just quickly, it's a pre-vaccine and a post-vaccine economy. And the pre-vaccine economy is gonna be slower than we'd like, and it's going to expand more slowly than we like because people don't wanna fly, they don't wanna go to restaurants, and they're concerned about their families and their elderly parents or their young children. So until we get a vaccine, assuming that we do get one, I think we're gonna have a rough go of it. This is sort of like the 1919 interregnum into 1920. Uh, and if you guys read The uh, Great Influenza by John Barry, uh, it's a fascinating book. 70 million people die from The Great Influenza, known as the Spanish flu, even though it didn't originate in Spain. Uh, 750,000 died in the United States. But at that period of time, we were touching off an explosion in automobiles, an explosion in information and telecommunications at that period of time. Uh, and we led into the Roaring Twenties, I predict something like that will happen as well, as all of these technologies that have been working on, uh, as Alan Patrickoff knows, are going to grow exponentially over the next decade. So all in all, I'm optimistic. You know, the thing holding back the United States are, is our politicians and the polarity and the polemics in, 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 in policy. 30 seconds on the, on the XM Bank, just briefly, I got dropped into the XM Bank in June of 2017 by President Trump. He had, he had asked for a meeting with me. I went to the Oval Office and met with him. And he said, listen, 
I'm going to eventually bring you into the White House, but I want you to do something for me. Rand Paul wants to abolish the XM Bank. And I don't know if I should do that or not. I want to drop you in there, spend three or four weeks there as their chief strategy officer, and then report back to me to see whether or not I should do that. Well, Fred knows this. I called Fred. We met for several hours. Uh, and then I began the process of interviewing the entire personnel at the bank. Uh, Rand, Senator Paul was coming at me very hard. He wanted a 30 page report and blah, blah, blah. But I know the president's personality very well. Uh, and so there's no chance he's reading a 30 page report. So I went to the Oval Office after our meeting and I sat with the president and he said, should we keep it or should we get rid of it? And I had a whole speech prepared with bullet point sound bites and the whole thing. I said, we should keep it. He picked up the phone, he called Rand Paul. He said, okay, we're keeping the XM bank. Let's move on to something else. And I attribute that to you, Fred. <laughs> and what I would say about the XM bank is that it is a wonderful mechanism for our economy. It's a wonderful mechanism for our growth of our nation's businesses, not just the bank of Boeing. Uh, and we are being outmatched by the Chinese 10 to one in terms of what they're doing on the export import side. And we need to start thinking about that more holistically, that intersection between government and private enterprise so that we can make our corporations, our businesses large and small competitive in the new world that we're living in. So kudos to you for helping me keep that thing alive. Well, helping us keep kind. that thing alive. Obviously, there was a good messenger to President Trump at that time. Uh, you, you talked just briefly about the difference yep. between the real economy and the asset economy. And uh, it seems that this is going to even widen the difference, uh, economic difference and the differences of equality in our country. As you know, people are losing their jobs and then they see the stock market reaching all-time highs. How do you see that? What do you see as the impact of that? How does that play itself out? Because I'm going to leave it to you to how to describe it. Well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm worried about that. I want to give a little bit of a backdrop. You know, I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a crane operator here on Long Island for 42 years. He was a member of a union and he was an hourly worker. And uh, I would never tell anybody I grew up poor. I did not. I would never dishonor my dad's work ethic by telling anybody I grew up poor. We had a great middle class upbringing. You know, I shared a room with my brother and, you know, we were beating the hell out of each other. But but it was a great experience, but it was an aspirational working class family. Uh, what's happened over the last 35 years is we've switched those families. Those families have become desperational working class families. Uh, when I was on the campaign with President Trump and I visited Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I crossed the security perimeter and went into the civic center to ask people why they were there, the, the, the resonating message was desperation. I'm here because I lost my job. I'm here because you're in New Mexico, Anthony, but new New Mexico is Mexico. The factories have moved to Mexico. My dad lost his job. I can't find a job. And Mr. Trump is promising to bring the jobs back. And so there was a plight and a large group of blue collar American families that were looking for hope from the government. And whether you like politics or you don't like politics, unfortunately, establishment politicians, and this is sort of an indictment of both sides, they left a vacuum of advocacy there in that area of our country. Uh, and that, that advocacy is still needed today. Moreover, 
you had one basic blunt instrument to cure us from the global financial crisis in 2008. That was monetary policy. We didn't go for infrastructure. We didn't go for a right-sizing or re-engineering of our public K through 12 education system. We didn't go for jobs training. What we did was we lowered interest rates and then we created a process known as quantitative easing to buy assets to stabilize the economy. Well, guess what? If 3% of the people in the United States own the assets, their wealth and their incomes are going up off of those assets. The other 97% of the people feel left out. And if you look at the jobs data, and I told candidate Trump this in July of 2016 before the convention, I had gotten to my dad's uh, old union uh, and I had asked what the salaries were, hourly wages for crane operators. Turns out the crane operators on Long Island are down 50%, meaning there's only half those jobs. And if you're a crane operator on Long Island today, 40 years later, so 1976 to 2016, your real wages are down about 26%. So you go from the area I lived in, aspirational working class to desperational working class. And so the great irony of what's happening right now, and the Fed can only do so much, the monetary policy is exacerbating the populism, exacerbating the public angst and the dissension, and it's creating a wider and wider wealth gap. And if we don't get together as a group of people in a bipartisan way and not focus on left or right strategies, but what is right or wrong for America, we're gonna enter into a dangerous period for the United States. We don't need that. Uh, we got there in the 1930s, thank God for Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and you know we can go on and on historically about what he did. And in so many ways, people called him a traitor to his class, but the great irony was he was a savior to his class because he was trying to create a bedrock and a foundation to grow middle-class America. Because what do we know? If we have a robust, aspiring middle-class, people start to really dig in and believe in the American dream and they care less about what other people have and they care more about what their sons and daughters are gonna have in the future. And so we're in trouble right now because we only have one blunt instrument trying to cure the COVID-19 virus crisis. And I think it's very, very scary, frankly. And what are your prospects for that, for, as you just said, the po politicians coming together to deal with this issue? Well, you have to tell me what happens in, uh, in November, because unfortunately... Wait, wait, wait. I thought you were going to tell us what's going to happen. Well, I'm going to give you my prediction, but, but, <laughs> yeah, but, but, I will, but I'm also going to caveat my prediction because I know the president. And so you're 150 days out from the election. And I'm telling you, that's like 500 years in Trump world. That's like taking the country back to Christopher Columbus, okay? If you think anybody is going to be able to predict what's going to happen in that election in mid-June, uh, you're, you're sorely mistaken because we had flash polling October 8th, 9th, and 10th. October 7th was the Access Hollywood tape. That weekend polling into Monday, Tuesday, leading into the St. Louis debate, uh, the president was down, I'm sorry, the candidate at that time, down 12% relative to Secretary Clinton. One month ago in the election, down 12%, we thought he was smoked. He went on to win the election. So we're sitting here 150 days out. The polling data looks bad for him. I'm going to explain to you why he's going to lose in a second. But the polling data looks bad for him, but you can never rule him out entirely 
because of the, his personality and because of what's going on in the country right now, in certain areas of the country that have decided in almost a cult-like way they're going to back him no matter what. But assuming he loses, you have an opportunity to heal the country. You know, Vice President Biden has the opportunity to be that transformative leader, that post-partisan leader that the country sorely needs right now to break some compromises and to cut some deals uh, to get some things going uh, as it relates to areas of public spending and infrastructure and growth and sort of fairness, creating a fairer, more equitable economic system for the United States. The president, unfortunately, three and a half years of data is in, he is a red tribal leader. He is running the country for one tribe, and it's a tribe that has a certain feeling about the country. They feel that they're in a culture war with the other tribe, and that President Trump and Bill Barr are the fingers in the dike protecting them from a cultural tsunami that's going to, quote unquote, ruin their country that they have a nostalgic feeling for. You may like that or dislike that, but that's what we're dealing with. And we need to get to those people and to convince them that they're wrong about that, that this is a country for everybody, just like it was for my immigrant Italian grandparents, and that you'll be fine in an, an abided administration. And in some ways, and progressives on this call will be upset we'll be saying this, but in some ways, Vice President Biden is more of a Republican than Donald Trump. He has a respect for the military. He has a respect for our alliances. He's predominantly been fiscally prudent. Look at the deficit reduction in the back half of the Obama administration. So, so when you compare these two guys, and if you're an old line Reagan Republican, Eisenhower Republican, Romney Republican, Biden is way closer to your subset of political philosophy than Trumpism. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm managing our time. I'm gonna ask you one last question and then let Patricia open it up because we've got a lot of people on this call. Um, we read about uh, 10 days ago about uh, the country entering a recession. I did a quick uh, news and Google search this morning, and since June 8th or 9th, there's hardly a single article about the fact that we're in a recession. How do you understand how, after the longest peacetime recovery and the longest positive economy, we enter a recession and it seems to be a non-event? Well, I think it's a non-event from a media perspective, and it's a non-event for a very good swath of people, you know, that are in that elite that are able to access Zoom and put their suits on and have conversations and do their work. But it is a significant event for blue-collar people that have to go to work somewhere to get a job or have to go to a restaurant and wait on tables or bus or dishwash. So, so I think that's the dichotomy once again. Uh, the people that are writing about it don't feel the severity of the pain that the other people feel. You know, my, my cousins, uh, my brother and I, the only two that went to college out of 40 of us uh, that were born in that generation. Uh, I've got cousins out here on Long Island that are clamors. They're putting in auto glass. They're working in delis. They're working in auto collision. They're getting destroyed. Okay, they're getting flat out destroyed because of what's going on in the economy. And so if you're a clamor and none of the restaurants are open or a few of them are delivering takeout, you're not, you're not selling a lot of clams. So, so for, for me, you know, I, I see the pain that's out there and I see the anxiety and it's spilling over. You know, there's a, there's a, a match that got lit, unfortunately, with this tragedy in Minnesota 
and it's spilling over now into other aspects of grievances, justifiable grievances that are taking place in the society right now. You've got 40-ish million people out of work. They're going to start marching. Okay. Patricia, do you want to open this up or? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You're always fascinating. So smart. Um, we've got two questions uh, coming up. One is from Morley Klauser. Do you want to start? And then Alan, you have a question. Okay. Um, I wanted to know what you meant by a fair economic um, way of doing things. Um, what does that look like to you? And are the clamors and the auto, auto people that in your family, have they come over to um, the Democratic side or are they still for Trump? So it's a, it's a very good question. And so my family, you have to remember, Trump attacked my wife on Twitter. Okay, so you have to remember, I'm an Italian-American from Long Island. Do I look like Ted Cruz to anybody on this call? Okay, the guy went after my wife on Twitter. So there's nobody in my family that's going to vote for Donald Trump ever, okay? Donald Trump couldn't get a restaurant reservation in my hometown, okay? So let me just stipulate that. But you're, you're asking a more broad question about blue-collar people. Are they willing to switch over to, to the Democrats or not? And I think they are. I think most blue collar people are asking themselves the Ronald Reagan 1980 debate question. Am I better off today than I was four years ago? And the answer is they are not. And so I think that they are thinking about that in general, but we gotta push them because up against that is a great culture war. Donald Trump is a masterful culture warrior. He will go to people and he will inspire fear He'll say they're taking your police away, they're taking this away from you, they're taking that away from you, your church, they're gonna take your guns. And all of a sudden now you're in a culture war as well as an economic war, and we have to abate that. We have to go into those areas and into those precincts and explain to those people that it's gonna be okay and why it's gonna be okay. Uh, but, but secondarily on opportunity. I'm about equal opportunity. I don't believe in equal outcomes. I am still a Republican and I still believe in the methodology of the incentives in a free market system. Sure, there's crony capitalism and sure there are issues of unfairness, but we have to figure out how to right size the educational process in the public school systems because I got lucky. I went to a great public school, went to Tufts, Harvard Law School, Goldman Sachs, and built two reasonably successful businesses. But if you're in a zip code where you can't get a good public education, you don't have a chance. And so that's where I think the unfairness is. I'm not a socialist. It doesn't work. People are by and large want to take care of their families and they have a selfish streak in their personalities. So therefore, when you look at the legacy of 150 years of data on socialism, it actually doesn't work. Can there be a platform and a safety net? Can there be things that the government provides to help make people feel more secure? Yes, I'm all for those types of things. I think Andrew Yang's ideas about universal basic income are great ideas. I've actually spent a lot of time studying that. And I tell my conservative friends they don't understand it uh, because to really understand it, it has a libertarian streak to it where you're providing a platform for people so that they can actually really realize their lives. 
the way they want to as opposed to the way the economy dictates. So we can talk about that. It's probably too long-winded, but I've done a lot of work on that. Uh, and I actually think that's a libertarian idea more than it is a socialist idea. But this put simply, equal opportunity versus equal outcomes. And you'll see a group of people that are very hungry and very motivated to see their children do better. Thank you you said education, but what, what else is there to well, make the fair economic There's education, system. there's jobs training, there's infrastructure. I can show you data in the city of Boston after the big dig, middle income rose exponentially because you had more commerce in the city. And so if you were a plumber or a blue collar worker or a deli person, there was more traffic in their store or there were more business transactions. So you drop infrastructure into our major cities, you're creating construction jobs, but then you're also creating the positive externalities associated with that infrastructure. So it's infrastructure, it's education, it's jobs training. And I submit to everybody here rhetorically, I want you to think about this. Where is the 10 year plan for America? The 15 year plan. Uh, the Chinese, we know, because we travel to China, we know they have a 100-year plan. You can Google China plan 2049. It's 100 years after Mao's revolution. And you can see where they want to be in terms of their high-speed trains, their infrastructure, their educational system. The United States has a two-minute cable news cycle plan. We're going to bash each other's skull at night. We're going to gerrymander our enemies out of our districts, and we're going to stay hived into this tribal situation to preserve our power, as opposed to coming together and coming up with really good long-term strategic plans to help the country. No 10-year plan. Ask any politician, okay, where's our 10-year plan to fix some of these irregularities in our system? No? Thanks. Alan, you're up. Hi, Anthony. Uh, what I was going to ask you about is I am, I feel very strongly that what's happened here uh, in the last two weeks with the whole uh, Black Lives Matter uh, matter itself has been a, is, is a major inflection point in our social fabric of this country. And I, I'm just curious what your reaction is. I have a lot of friends who say, you know, this is one of many on a continuum. It's just here it is again, uh, and people will forget about it. I, I feel very strongly that this is, this is different than all the others. And I think that uh, we're already starting to see this reflected across society, from business to, to social to, to philanthropic. It, it's happening every place. And I'm just curious what your... Uh, have your personal feeling is, is is this a seminal moment for relationships in this country or is it just another another step on the long journey okay so i can only give you my 56 year observation okay and i'm going to make a couple stipulations if you're an ethnic on this call somebody in your family faced some level of discrimination coming into the country uh, my grandmother used to tell us stories where the sign said nina no Italians need apply. And she'd say, Anthony, that meant Irish too. I couldn't get a job in Brooklyn when I landed. And so I had to turn beds, I had to be a maid. Uh, and, and she did that and she did that very, very successfully. And, you know, I mean, she's a very big part of the baton passing in my story of the American dream. So one, there is discrimination and there is nativism in our country and other countries. I have to stipulate that. Number two, is there or is there not institutional racism? 
Well, if you are in touch with people in the inner cities and you are in touch with people from a diverse demographic base, then you know, you know that there is institutional racism in our country. And so I find it very upsetting that somebody like Larry Kudlow or President Trump can act like there's no institutional racism. So, so we can discuss how we're going to handle it. But the first thing we have to do, Alan, is we've got to get the facts in agreement. I saw a magnificent uh, cartoon in the New Yorker a few weeks ago. It was a news anchor. And he said, well, we just heard from the Democratic weather person. Now let's get the weather from the Republican weather person. And it was a beautiful, symbolic, you know, cartoon about where we are in our society right now, where we can't even agree on the facts on basic things. So for me, let's get the facts on the table. If you're an ethnic, you face some level of discrimination. Is there or is there not institutional racism? There definitely is. And I can give you the data to support what I'm saying. And then the third thing is, is there a way to break that down? And as far as I can tell, a sociologist or people that look at that say yes, but it would take a monumental unanimous effort. We would all have to pull together and stipulate that the first two things are there and therefore they're systemically unfair, and now we have to pull together. A le legislating that we have to hire more minorities or legislating that we, the police can't put on a chokehold, it's gonna go a little bit, but it's not gonna fully solve the problem. The problem has to be solved systemically. And so you ask me, is this gonna blow over? It is not going to blow over. Something has happened, and it's very different from 1968. Trump thinks he is, President Nixon, so he's tweeting law and order every 35 hours. And Nixon was the law and order guy after the 68 convention in Chicago. He knew that the American people didn't like it. They were all still post-World War II people by and large in the voting block and military people like order, law and order. Well, that's gone away. You only have one to 2% of our population in the military now and this has changed the world. See, this is a radio station, it's a movie camera, it's a television station, and that 17-year-old girl that took those images of that murder, flat-out murder, okay, and forget about the personalities involved, just a flat-out murder, that is going on all over the place, okay? And you know that, Alan, and I know that, but when you are now beaming it to the 4 billion people that have internet access, uh, it is world changing. And so I'm in your camp. I think it is world changing. Uh, the Republicans are going to try to suppress the vote. Does that surprise anybody on this call? If you're a Republican, chime in now and tell me that you're not. But let's just look at the data in Georgia. But let me tell you something. If they can't suppress the vote and they're not successful suppressing the vote, Trump's going to lose because this is a seismic change. He is George Wallace in 1963, standing at the doorstep at the University of Alabama, getting castigated by the National Guard. He is not Richard Nixon in 1968. Fascinating, um, that's so true. Um, Paul Byrne, you have a question? Thanks, Patricia. And uh, thank you, Anthony. Hey, Paul. I, let me just highlight my hat, first of all, my new favorite hat, which uh, came from this Tom Steyer campaign, but I'm, I wear it every day. Uh, quick question. What do you think is the outcome for the House and the Senate? 
Well, you, 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 you got me there because, you know, I can, uh, you know, I'm a Republican. So when I look at it, I'm getting the data from the Republicans. So they think that they're going to hold the Senate and they're, they're going to lose some seats in the House. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. There is other data that the polling is going to be potentially overwhelming in certain states that could flip the Senate as well as the House. I, I sort of am in the camp that it depends on the economy. If you see a steep economy, economic recovery, faster than, say, someone like me would expect, I think the Republicans will definitely hold the Senate and likely lose some seats in the House. But Trump is going to lose because the Trump playbook is now a tired playbook. Go look at uh, Real Clear Politics and look at the voting numbers of women over the age of 50 for the president. He won 52% of the white women's vote in 2016. Now, my friend Kellyanne Conway is poo-pooing the polls. You trust me, ladies and gentlemen, they are panicked about those polls. You, you, you're not going to win those women back. What is President Trump going to do? He's going to go out and give a healing speech after all this racial nonsense and that stupid photo op in front of the church and all the craziness on his Twitter feed. He, he's the man of the hour with empathy and healing and compassion for the society. It's just not gonna happen. So he's got a gender gap that in my opinion is insurmountable. Somebody just posted it, thank you, Emily. But my, 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 that's my belief, Paul. So I, I don't know on the House and Senate, but my guess is, is that the Republicans probably keep the Senate and Joe Biden wins and, and the Democrats gain seats in the House. So you think that um, we, we may have some real opportunity for change if, you're gonna, if we're going to sweep? I do. I do. But remember, you know, guys, I'm a moderate Republican. So I want Joe Biden to win so that it can provide an opportunity to restate and re-engineer the Republican Party. The schism in the Republican Party right now is worse than the 1976 schism between Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan. This is a deviation from party principles. This is a gentleman that has hijacked the party and through demagoguery and fear and intimidation and his Twitter feed has landlocked a group of very scared politicians to join him. Okay, And that is a power preservation move by those politicians it's not born from patriotism. It's not born from principle. It's born from power preservation. And so what they did, but for Mitt Romney, to me is absolutely disgusting. And so I supported them, but I would submit to everybody on this call, you had two choices. I'm a lifelong Republican. I went with President Trump. I went to go work for him. But, you know, Alan has backed and run businesses and sat on boards. But I would say to everybody on this call, if you were at board, on a board, a director of a publicly traded company, and we made the decision collectively to hire the CEO, and the CEO acted like this man for three and a half years. There's no prudent person on this call that wouldn't seek the removal of that CEO. And so for me, it's really about that as a business person. I made a bad hiring decision. The guy obviously sucks at the job. Excuse the worst I'll be on this call. I, I have other fresher language, but I'll only go that far. Okay, he sucks at the job and he's gotta go. Okay, it's just really that simple. And so Vice President Biden, I know he has his strengths and weaknesses. What human being doesn't, but he's not Trump. 
Okay, and that's got to be the call right now. He's got to go. It'll give that opportunity for that party to refresh itself and re-engineer itself and hopefully open the tent demographically so that it can meet the Democrats in the middle and get some real progress done for our society. You don't, see him, with you, President Trump. you don't see him going on his own station after this, if, if assume he loses, and just staying with his, um, his platform and his kind of talk and rhetoric, and so I, still I, changing I, the Republican Party? I, I, don't, I don't see that because of the humiliation. You have, to, you have to really understand this guy, okay? That loss as the sitting president of the United States, the first president to lose since George Herbert Walker Bush, it's a 28 years, we've been running two terms. That loss for his personality will be so humiliating, it'll be so devastating that he won't have a lot of ground to stand on in that situation. Moreover, this is a demagogic personality cult. And so this is like, you know, the scene when Arya Stark takes out the Night King. Once he dematerializes, it's going to wipe out that entire voting block. That's where Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and those guys, in my opinion, have it wrong. There's not a Trump base that's transferable because they don't have Trump's personality and they don't have his demagogic skills. Uh, they're not, you know, look, it's like Joe McCarthy had a baby with Roy Cohn and they made Donald John Trump and he became the president of the United States. Okay, I mean, that's basically what happened, and none of those people have that gene pool. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, absolutely, they don't. Um, so Jerry Leichling from Los Angeles has a, has a question for you. Jerry, you there? Yeah, hi there, hi Anthony. Hey, Jerry. Why, why do you continually, reflexively, in my mind, call yourself a Republican? when the Republican Party has to transmute, it has to change to something like a new Republican because post-Trump, it's a different world. It's not the, the Republican Party that you I, identify with. It's okay, so that's funny you brought that up and I'm glad I can see Alan Patrickoff on my screen. About three months ago in the core club, I said, Alan, this is not going well for the Republicans. I said, I don't know if the Democrats would ever accept me but this is not going well. And Alan could chime in if he wants, but he said, oh, don't worry. If you're ready to move to the Democratic Party, I'll be your ambassador. Did you not say that, Alan? Yeah, he's nodding his head, okay, he's on mute. But the point being, you're right, okay? There's, there is a Bermuda Triangle that the Republican Party got sucked into. It is not my party anymore. It's not Joe Scarborough's party. It's not Rick Wilson's party. It's not George Conway's party. But, you know, I grew up as a Republican. You remember the unions on Long Island and Nassau County were controlled by Republicans. On my 18th birthday, I turned to my pop and I said, okay, dad, I'm going to register to vote. I mean, what party am I registering? Said, well, you're a Republican. Did I under even understand that? I didn't. Why? Because the unions were controlled on this island by the Republicans. Uh, I did David Axelrod's podcast a few years ago. He said, you know, you're a Republican because your dad was in a union on Long Island in Nassau County, right? I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, that was the, one of the few areas of the country where the Republicans actually control the unions. And he's the only one that actually knew that. I thought that was fascinating. But the point I'm making is I'm, I, I, I could switch parties. I'm a flexible person, but I would like to try to see if we can offer a solution on the side of the Republican Party 
that could bridge the gap with the Democrats. Because again, my feeling is that this is going to be about right or wrong policy going forward as opposed to left or right policy. And, and you're going to need a lot of people in the middle to meet each other to make that happen. And you're going to have to sell it to a large group of people that have been indoctrinated by Fox News. You know, they won't even let me on Fox News anymore. Those, those anchors don't want to debate me about Trump. Not one of them. You have to get yourself a slot on MSNBC and reframe exactly. the dialogue. Well, I, I, don't, who's, I don't even know who's running him. I know Andy Lack left. Just make a call for me, okay? I'll go over there. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, you know, would you? you... Know, Patricia Duff knows the most dangerous place in America. What's the most dangerous place in America, Patricia? It's between me and a camera and a microphone. <laughs> That's the most dangerous place in America. Yeah, oh, you get the Chuck Schumer Award. A Anthony, we yeah, love you. funny about it. <laughs> yeah, no, Anthony, you know I'm a big fan. Are you, would you consider running for office? You know, I, I, I gotta be honest with you, I got, if you, you know, if you've ever been lit up in the tabloids, you know how painful that is, okay? My wife and I were on the verge of a divorce during the Trump fiasco. And so, Patricia, I'm running for re-election in my marriage right now. You know, that, that's basically <laughs> the thing I'm focused on. I got to tell you, I think I'm on like a one-day term. So, you know, it's a constant campaign, you know, in that area. So, I don't know. I'm not a politician. I, I don't think about the world the way a politician does. And so, I don't even know if that would be the right job for me, to be honest. But that's not to say I would, wouldn't rule it out. You know, politicians would say, well, I'm never running, and then they go and run. So, I, I don't know the answer to that right now. Patricia should get you an Ari Melvis show. Yeah, well, then, <laughs> yeah you should go. Ari's a great guy. But one of the things I want to do is, you know, grow my company, stabilize it in the post-pandemic, and then we can have conversations like that. Well, is there a small child that's going up and down the stairs with a... Yes. Yeah, he's, he wants to know what I'm doing because he wants to go out and play on the swings. You see that? He sees, <laughs> that that's the great part of the pandemic. You get to see everybody's craziness. Uh, what, what I did in here is I built a home studio, and so those are uh, sound pads. Uh, you know, and there's a camera here to do Ari Malibu's show, or I'm going on Joy Reid tomorrow at 7 o'clock. There you go. You're yeah. on MSNBC. <laughs> well, I want to thank having, you so I'm having much. Dinner. I'm having dinner with Ari tomorrow night, so. I will oh, tell right. Ari I say hello. Him and I have been to the polo lounge together. He's a terrific guy. He's one of the brighter stars there. Yeah, agreed. Just a great guy, totally great guy. Anybody have any other questions? Otherwise, we'll let um, we'll let Anthony go. We want to have you back, Anthony. It's always fun. And 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 Fred can't thank you enough for um, joining us like well, this. It's a, it's a big honor to be here. I want to give out a, a shout out to my partner Robert Wolf and our uh, project Strategic Worldviews, which uh, we've got a very good, terrific bipartisan uh, think tank going. Me and Robert, so. Uh, it's a big honor to be on here. Thank you, guys. We'll have you back. Thank you right, so thank much. You and everybody, you, please do come back. We've got some terrific shows coming up. We've got uh, Doug Schoen and Rick Tyler uh, giving their strategy ideas for uh, Biden and, and Trump. We are going to have Governor Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, with Secretary Jay Johnson. We're going to have the legal expert Neil Katyal with Kay Koplovitz. I think Kay may be on this call. If she is, I hope. Uh, you'll join in to, to watch Kay. Uh, we're gonna have Tom Rogers talking about social media and uh, how powerful they are and how we may need to check it. We're gonna have Sarah Longwell, 
who started the Lincoln Project, which is really giving um, the Trump administration some some uh, some ulcers because they're giving them a, a tough time. Um, we'll also be talking to Congressman Eric Swalwell, who uh, was pretty key in the impeachment hearing. So please, please join us. And thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Fred. Hope thank to see you, you again soon. It's a big honor to be on, Patricia. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for having you. Us. Thanks so much. Right.